This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The high cost of college and the debt that students take on in order to pay for it may yet prove to be an important election issue. Cato's Diego Zuluaga has taken a look at two plans aimed at reducing college costs offered by presidential candidates and U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. When you take out higher education. Typically, you do it as an investment to gain skills that will, in- it will increase your future income and will enable you to uh, have access to jobs that otherwise you wouldn't, uh, which are more remunerative in general than non-college degree requiring uh, jobs. And in fact, if you look at, at the income premium, that is the extra uh, income that you earn uh, when you have a college degree, that straight, stayed pretty constant uh, or even increased in the last 25, 30 years. So for a lot of people, I think it still makes sense to obtain higher education. The question is, do they have the information uh, and the market signals to make the right decision when it comes to deciding which degree to take, how much um, money to borrow for their degree, and how long to uh, stay in higher education. And I think that's where the signals get confused, mostly because of government intervention. Uh, A lot of Americans aren't aware of the fact that more than 90% of outstanding student loan burdens uh, are related to the federal government. And so it's basically a um, government-run program of financial aid. And uh, therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise that it's been since since that uh, takeover in 2008, 2009, that most of the outstanding loan liabilities have accrued. So about half of the one and a half trillion dollars outstanding in in student loans has been accrued since 2009. This is not a longstanding problem, as is often described, but rather it's something that has been driven both by the government takeover as well as by the recession, which drove a lot of people back into education to uh, gain uh, additional skills to make themselves more useful in the in the job market, uh, but also the fact that since then we have increased the possibilities for people to reduce the amount of money that they repay, and that's created an incentive to borrow more money. All right. So you mentioned uh, young people, uh, students not receiving the right signals, and uh, you attribute some of that to uh, broad federal intervention in the uh, student loan market. I mean, it's almost unfair to say it's a federal intervention. It's almost a federal system. But uh, to the extent that there are signals that private borrowers could provide, what would that look like if if a private borrower were to say, well, we're going to give you this much for this degree or this much for this degree. Is that that something private borrowers would be amenable to? The best way to look at it is by comparing it to other lending markets in which private uh, market forces and competition play more of a role. Uh, So normally when you borrow money to buy a house or you borrow money to buy a car, uh, you are uh, you you go through a process known as underwriting, where the lender looks at your income, looks at what you're buying, looks at your record of repaying debts, looks at your credit score, which is a summary of your uh, credit history uh, over time. And on that basis, makes a decision, first of all, as to whether or not to lend you the money that you're asking for, or more or less, uh, but also what interest rate to charge. And if you look at uh, interest rates for car loans today, they vary tremendously with the credit score of the borrower. Not surprisingly, because the likelihood of default and uh, conversely, the likelihood of repayment depend very much 
on the borrower's ability to repay and their history of repayments. So you will have for people with relatively high credit scores, say 750 to 780, you will have something like a 3 to 5% interest rate on a car loan today. Whereas if you go down the credit score uh, spectrum to the 620, 640s, uh, it's much more like 10, 12, 14%. We don't find that with student loans. With student loans, interest rates are regulated and set every year by the Department of Education, and they range anywhere between 5 and 7%, but they don't change on the basis of the borrower's history or the degree that they're taking, which obviously has a lot of implications for the income that they will make, uh, and how much debt they already have outstanding. In fact, the interest rate is, as I say, uh, government-set and government-enforced, and uh, it's dependent on uh, government decision-making unrelated to the underlying risk. Now, what that causes is two things. First of all, taxpayers who ultimately are underwriting this program of student loans don't have, um, are not are not protected from exposure to uh, student loan defaults to the extent that they would in a private market because there's not that risk adjustment that you have uh, in other segments of of lending. Uh, But then secondly, the borrowers themselves have a hard time getting the right signals from the market as to whether it's a good idea to borrow or not because even the risky people are subject to the lower interest rates. So the signal to them is to say, go ahead and borrow as much as you can. And then those people might find themselves in financial distress. So, uh, with respect specifically to a couple of plans that have been unveiled to address, uh, and sometimes not directly address, but uh, address the problem of the uh, large amount of borrowing that young young people feel compelled to do, uh, what is Elizabeth Warren's plan uh, broadly? She seems to want to fund her plans through uh, an increase in taxes for uh, wealthy American families. So she, what is she proposing? She She's proposed the wealth tax, and I, um, I, I'm not privy to the specifics of the wealth tax plan, although I understand that it's been promised for several different programs. So I wonder if there's some element of double counting there. But as far as student loans go, Elizabeth Warren wants to forgive up to $50,000 for households or individuals with less than a hundred thousand dollars in annual income. And what that amounts to is out of the one one and a half trillion dollars of outstanding loans, about half or slightly less than half around 650 billion dollars would be forgiven under this program. Now, that may sound very good and it may even sound equitable to some people because you have the income threshold and you also have the maximum loan amount that's forgiven. But in fact, if what you're worried about is financial distress as a result of student borrowing, it's an entirely miscalibrated program. And that is because most financial distress, that is most defaults, most people struggling to repay, are not uh, struggling to repay because they owe a lot of money, but rather they're struggling to repay because they earn too little income. They're typically people who went to a two-year college or a career college and had to drop out of school because you know their family situation required them to go back to work. They're older, they have children, they have dependents. Uh, and uh, as a result, they couldn't complete their degree and they're not earning that income premium that I was talking about as a result of the degree. The people going to um, non-profit four-year and you know private four-year colleges with much higher outstanding loan amounts, uh, their default rates are much, much lower. 
And they're actually making much higher incomes to uh, pay off that investment that they made in themselves. It's not the law school graduates and the med school graduates who are struggling. It's uh, people at the lower end of the income spectrum. So we would be spending a lot of money, a lot of taxpayers' money, on rescuing people that don't need rescuing. This is quite a regressive program, meaning higher income people are more helped than lower income people. It's just a bad idea, bad fiscal policy. So, yeah, I was wondering why someone who earns $100,000 a year uh, up to $250,000 a year would need or uh, why those people ought to have any portion of their debts, their student debts forgiven at all. Well, that's right. I mean, I think the criterion for, you know, I think we should look at what's already there because, and we can talk about this in a moment, there are already programs to adjust repayment to the income that you make to make sure uh, that the burden doesn't become too much. Uh, and, you know, we can debate as to how well those programs are working. But I think for any forgiveness program, we should look at whether it's necessary. But the second question is to say, let's just target taxpayer liabilities to the people who are genuinely in distress and where uh, society's uh, help uh, might be justifiable. And as you say, the people with you know six-figure incomes, particularly the ones that have no problem repayment, repaying their student loans and, uh, and are earning uh, very well above the U.S. median household income, which is around 50-something, 60-something thousand, uh, why they should be helped. Uh, so we can target uh, the help much more effectively and lower the uh, the taxpayer liability um, as a result. So with respect to the Bernie Sanders plan, uh, he would like to make a vast uh, range of education tuition free uh, from his own website. It's it's a pretty pretty uh, sparse description of it. Uh, make public colleges, universities, and trade schools tuition free. Uh, fully fund historically black colleges and universities. Substantially lower student debt. Significantly lower interest rates on student loans. So to the extent that the federal government is running broadly student loan, the student loan business uh, in the United States, what would the effective impact of significantly lowering interest rates on student loans be? You've already sort of mentioned it. Well, it encourages people to take longer to repay, which is usually not a good idea because this is valuable capital that could be redeployed elsewhere. It also distorts decision-making because, as I explained, people don't get the right information about uh, what the cost of their investment actually is. Then you have taxpayer subsidies, of course, involved because that's the only way you can pay for these lower rates. People think that somehow because the U.S. government can borrow at 2 or 2.5% right now, that uh, therefore they... Um, can also deploy that money for things like student loans at that same cost of capital. It's not the case at all because uh, the credit risk uh, involved in lending to the U.S. government is lower than that involved in lending to uh, people like, you know, young millennials like me with very few assets uh, and uh, and only the promise uh, of repayment. So you have to adjust for that in some sort of way and taxpayers are exposed if you use the same interest rate. As far as public tuition goes, um, it becomes an industrial policy. It's redirecting students to public colleges from uh, private ones and non and, and nonprofit ones. Um, it also creates incentives to take out more degrees, spend more time in higher education than perhaps you might want to do. In my native country of Spain, we have uh, broadly free uh, higher education, and that combined with a very dysfunctional labor market means that a lot of people stay on in higher education much longer than they would need to uh, to uh, to uh, obtain uh, valuable skills for the 
job market. And I don't think that that's the right way to go about things. Uh, so some of the same problems as with the Warren proposal uh, apply in this case. And again, we um, think that higher education should be encouraged because there are some sort of social benefits that are gained from it, you know, more civic behavior, more if informed citizenry. That's at least what we're told. However, the bulk of the gains from higher education accrue to the person uh, obtaining it. And therefore, they should be responsible for the bulk of the cost of providing it. And uh, anything that diverges from that is very likely to be regressive. One of the reasons, Caleb, I think people get so confused about the student loan issue is that DC, which is where a lot of these conversations are had, is very, very highly unrepresentative of uh, the, the the job market and the educational composition of the population of the rest of the country. More than 50% uh, of DC residents have a bachelor's degree or higher. A lot of them have, you know, further graduate degrees. And some of them don't pay very well because, you know, they're public service related. You know, people do it as, as a vocation rather than ne necessarily for uh, the income. That's not the case of the second, um, the second most educated as far as educational accreditation goes. The second most educated state, which is Massachusetts, is only about 43% bachelor's or higher. Now, what that means is that people assume that a much higher share of the American population goes to four-year colleges than they actually do. And so they misdiagnose the problem entirely, and they focus on people like themselves with relatively high student loan burdens, but also a high likelihood of increasing their earnings over time, rather than on the genuinely financially distressed people who live far away from Washington, D.C. It seems to me that uh, if you are going to make public colleges, universities, and even trade schools tuition-free and also significantly lower interest rates on student loans, that you're encouraging young people to think about uh, higher education as more of a consumer good and less as an investment. That's right. And I think some of, uh, particularly four-year higher education, is already a consumer good. A lot of people uh, major in things that they're interested in and that they like, rather than in things they think are going to be particularly useful as far as income goes in their professional uh, careers. And indeed, they may expect to learn on the job rather than learn at college what it is that they will need in order to uh, be financially secure in the future. But a lot of other people, particularly people at the lower end of the income spectrum, people who uh, pursue two-year degrees, who go to community colleges and career colleges, they are looking for skills-based training and things that will actually be useful in terms of giving them uh, more choice and greater access to um, better paying options in, in the job market. And uh, those people are not the bulk of uh, the beneficiaries from these kinds of proposals. So it's mixing signals further. It's uh, making uh, education, it potentially making education less relevant for the job market, uh, which is quite concerning because that was the uh, origin of a lot of the 20th century's programs for the expansion of higher education. Um, and then it's um, it, it's fiscally irresponsible because we, you know one and a half trillion is less than 10% of US GDP, but it's still one and a half uh, trillion dollars uh, of uh, of, of, a, of a federally guaranteed program that is increasingly divorced from the original goals, which were to increase the productivity of the economy and increase output and so on. At least that's what the promise was. There is a popular plan that, that young people uh, take advantage of, the idea that if you work for the government or a nonprofit for 10 years after you get out of school, that at the end of those 10 years after you make minimal payments, um, and I don't mean to diminish them, sometimes they are quite significant, 
uh, that all the debt will be forgiven at the end of that 10-year period. And yet there are a lot of young people uh, who have had trouble uh, getting the feds to make good on that promise. That's right. Um, it, it's it's it's. I mean, I think the way to look at it is the current repayment, the, the current uh, gamut of repayment programs offered by the Department of Education uh, and the and federal student aid is a mire. There are eight different repayment programs in addition to the one you mentioned, which is a special one called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness uh, Program, and that makes it very difficult for borrowers a lot of whom have relatively little financial literacy, uh, not much experience um, dealing with financial issues on their own, uh, to navigate and to apply for the programs that might be best suited uh, for themselves. Uh, In addition to that, it's not clear that the programs are very well targeted because public service loan forgiveness sounds very good, but oftentimes you're not talking necessarily about people who are making incomes well below what they could fetch on the open market. Rather, they work for nonprofits or they work for the government or they work for agencies, but they're earning competitive salaries. So they may be getting forgiveness, whereas someone in their same position would not get the same kind of treatment in the private sector. And to the extent that that is the case, you are, of course, encouraging people to move to certain kinds of employment activities, which may be good for themselves or not, but that's not the job of the government to do, to direct people uh, financially as to where they should uh, go to work. So the Trump administration has proposed to eliminate that public service loan forgiveness program to integrate all the various what are called income-based repayment plans, that is repayment plans that tie how much you pay every month to your income. And they're intended for people who have uh, high loan burdens relative to the income that they currently make. So the administration has proposed to integrate those. And finally, they've proposed to cap the part of the student loan system that still remains without a cap, which is called the PLUS loan program. And just to give brief detail on it, this is a program aimed at uh, parents and grad students. And basically borrowers can either use the credit record of their parents or when they have been accepted, admitted into a graduate program, they can borrow from this and there's no limit uh, up to the full cost of tuition as to how much they can borrow. Of course, the consequence of that, as in other markets where supply is constricted, uh, has been that, you know, the more money has been made available, the greater the increase in in, in tuition has been. And a Federal Reserve uh, Bank of New York paper that was published a couple of years ago found that for every dollar of additional student aid, tuition went up by 60 cents. And uh, that's an effect that's pervasive whenever uh, government gets, gives subsidies to products that are not diffi- that, are, that are difficult to uh, increase um, where the supply is not elastic, as we would say in economics, right? Where it's difficult to increase the amount that you provide. Prices just go up because demand is bid up. And that's precisely what's happened here. So it's not just on the borrowing end and the, uh, if you will, the retail, the front end where we have problems in in, in, the, in, in student loan uh, policy in the United States, but it's also when it comes to repayment, we're making things overly complicated, fiscally potentially costly, and uh, not efficient to the extent that resources are misallocated and uh, and prices are needlessly increased as a result of policy. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 